Heavenly Father, we've gathered here with a deep desire to worship you rightly. And that will require, Lord, that we have ears to hear you speak to us through your word. We are admittedly a stubborn-hearted, stiff-necked people. And pride prevents us from hearing the very truths that will make us wise. Blessing those in our lives, blessing our own lives, Lord, and equipping us to be the most faithful servants of you. I ask, Lord, that in light of this chapter in Esther, that we would see the foolishness of man, the thinking, the plans, the execution of a diabolical plan to exterminate your people. And we would see, Father, that we're not all that different. That apart from knowing you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and apart from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are equally foolish to the likes of Mordecai and Haman. And so be gracious with us this morning, Lord, to cause us to see that, in fact, we are fools. And then drive us to the cross of Christ, that we might, in knowing Him, in loving Him, and in submitting to Him, wisdom incarnate, become a wise people too. We want to be wise individually, Lord. We want your church here at Cambrian Park to be wise. We want your church throughout the world to live in accordance with the wisdom your word has declared. We ask, Lord, that you would do this, that we might be blessed, that you might bless our families, that we might as a church be blessed in walking in the wisdom of the Lord. But as always, Father, we ask it that you might be glorified in the work that you do through your people. And so help us to see in this narrative, Father, your great hand and your great work through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Amen. Okay. Esther 3. Esther 3, are you enjoying our walk through Esther thus far? It's a great story. So unless you don't like stories, um, and I, I haven't met anybody that doesn't like a good story. We are story people. God is a, a story-telling, story-making God, and therefore it's very much part of our DNA. Um, James, chapter five, James chapter 1, verse 5, you heard Bill read it. We're told, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and wisdom will be given him. The Bible teaches clearly that God alone is wise. That God alone discerns all truth. And I would argue that the wisest people on earth know that only God is wise and that as a result of our sin nature, we are fools. That each and every one of us, regardless of your upbringing or the number of degrees you have under your belt, each and every one of us is in desperate need of wisdom to come down from heaven and be poured out on us. Webster defines wisdom as this, listen, the soundness of an action or decision with regard to the application of experience, knowledge, and good judgment. That's not bad. Tim Keller, I like his definition, he says it's knowing the right thing to do when the rules don't apply. It's knowing what to do when you don't have a rule to tell you what to do. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9.10. In other words, 
The Bible makes it very clear. If you want to be wise, you must have a right relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Or no wisdom will be yours. Now, I I don't think most Americans, saved or unsaved, if you ask them to give you a characteristic that defines our culture, I doubt most people would say we are a wise people. I don't think that'd be at the top of the list. I don't think it'd be in the top ten. I mean, we see in virtually every corner of life, in our homes, in the workplace, in our marriages, in the communities, and certainly in the power structures, the political institutions, there isn't much wisdom of God, but there are large quantities of the foolishness of man. I don't know how we could argue against that in light of this last year. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that God's people, Proverbs chapter 4, we are to what? To get wisdom, to get insight. The sage says, do not forsake her, meaning wisdom, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. So this morning, by God's grace, I'd like us to leave here a little wiser when we leave than when we came in. And I think that's possible. I think by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, if we listen... If we hear and we submit, then we will be wiser as a result of looking at Esther chapter 3. And I'd like to do it under this single premise. Listen, your wisdom will be determined by the king that you serve. Your wisdom, the degree to which you live in wisdom and make life choices, will be in the context of the king that you serve. So let's get a little wiser this morning by looking at three aspects of wisdom. Number one, wisdom in the battles that we fight. Number two, wisdom in the decisions that we make. And number three, wisdom in the king we serve. So we're going to look at the battles that we fight, the decisions that we make, and underneath it all, the king that we serve, which truly will determine whether or not you can say, I am wise by God's grace, because it's not something of the flesh. Can we do that? All right. All right, I, 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 you look a little tired right now. <laughs> You're not convincing me. <laughs> all right, let's listen up, all right? Um, number one, wisdom in the battles we fight. So in the previous two chapters, we had a chance to see, we had a chance to look into the wickedness of the court of King Xerxes. We had a chance to see Vashti deposed and Esther become queen of Persia. And we saw last week the degree to which both Mordecai, a Jew, and Esther, a Jew, living in the Persian Empire, had truly assimilated. They weren't living as God's chosen people. And then chapter 3 begins, and we're immediately introduced to the last main character. We need the main character. It is the antagonist of the story. And he is introduced to us as Haman the Agagite. Haman had just been promoted at the beginning of chapter 3, to second in command in all the land. We're told in verse 1 that his throne was now above the officials who were with him. So everybody except Xerxes was underneath Haman. And we find here the tension or the point of tension where the crisis will come in. Right? All good stories have a crisis and all really good non-postmodern stories have a solution to that crisis. Look at the crisis that we have in verse 2. We're told that all the king's servants 
who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Why? Now listen, for the king had so commanded concerning him. So all the people were supposed to do this. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So Haman becomes second in command. King Xerxes says everybody's got to bow and pay homage. And everybody does it except Mordecai. Mordecai works for the king. He's a civil servant. That's why he's at the gate. So the first question we have to ask, that I had to ask, is why didn't he bow down? What is Mordecai doing here? Some argue that he wouldn't do it because he's a Jew and Jews don't bow to men. Well, that's nullified in chapter 8 because he certainly bowed to King Xerxes. Others argue, and I think this isn't bad, they said, well, you know, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai unveiled a plot and saved the king's life and expected something in return. We don't, we don't have any indication that he got it. And then we open chapter 3, and Haman's made second command. So some argue that he was jealous. And, and that may be true, but the text actually gives us the reason why Mordecai refused to bow a knee to Haman. Haman was an Agagite. And if you know your Exodus 17 well, and I hope you do, because we weren't there that long ago, Haman was a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, ancient enemies of the Jewish people. If you remember, it was the Amalekites that attacked the Jews before they even made it to Mount Sinai, remember? And then God made this proclamation to them in Exodus chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. God's laws do not change. Listen. He said, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, God says, I'm going to exercise justice for their treatment of my people. And then under the reign of King Saul a few centuries later, God decided to exercise this plan to blot out the memory of Amalek forever. But King Saul, as we know, he decided to do otherwise. God commanded King Saul to make sure to kill every man and beast. But Saul decided that he would spare the best animals. His excuse was, we'll use them to worship Yahweh. But worse yet, he spared King Agag's life. It was a decision so grievous to God that God deposed Saul as king and replaced him with David. Why that history? Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Haman is a descendant of King Agag. They were ethnically at war with each other for centuries before they ever met. And so paying homage to an Agagite from Mordecai's perspective was a line that he could not cross. Now the question for us is, given the power that had been ascribed to Haman by King Xerxes, Mordecai not bowing down Was that a wise decision? Was that something in retrospect we would say, yes, Mordecai's decision proved to be right? We certainly know it was costly. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, filled with rage. Now look at the latter part of verse 6. As they, Mordecai's colleagues, Mordecai's colleagues are going to Haman and saying, hey, you know, this guy's not bowing down to you. Day after day you come out, he will not bow down. And he, they made known to him the people of Mordecai that they were Jews. And then we're told Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. 
So centuries and centuries of hatred and animosity between the Amalekites and the Jews now boils over in Haman's prideful heart, and Haman now has the power to do something about it. And he says, I'm going to not just punish Mordecai for not bowing down to me. I'm going to punish every single Jew in the land. Not with a fine, not with imprisonment, but extermination. He's attempting to kill God's people. Now, most people would argue that this is an extreme and wildly foolish decision born out of the heart of rage. Most of the time, we do not make good decisions when we're angry. You know that, right? When you're typing up that email and you're just filled with anger... Good not to send it out, put it aside, read it after a few days. Most of the time you'll say, you know what, I shouldn't send it. So much anger in this man's heart that the edict goes out, and we're told in verse 15 that the citadel of Susa is thrown into confusion. There were many Jews in Susa, many Jews who were living peacefully as productive citizens in the king's court, and so it ran very much contrary to what the Edith had been predicated on is that they were a lawless people, not abiding to the laws of King Xerxes. What about Mordecai's decision? I mean, we, I think it's easy to look at Haman's decision and say, that's not wise, right? Exterminating people, most of us would say that's not wise. What about Mordecai? Was this a battle that was righteous enough to bring God glory, or was it something that, in retrospect, we would consider foolish? Now, there's lots of parallels. We talked about this last week between Daniel and Esther. For those of you who remember Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar says, you must bow down to this golden idol. And they said, we will not. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And most Christians would say, he was commanding idolatry. That was right. But in our narrative, Mordecai is not being commanded to worship Haman. He's only being commanded to pay him respect in the power and position he has now a second in the land. And besides that, last week we saw that Mordecai had already compromised on several of his Jewish tenants. I mean, he handed over Esther. He was participating in the work of the kingdom. And yet here we find a very strange place for Mordecai to draw a line in the sand and say, I will not, as a Jew, bow down to an Agagite. God's people have spent much of human history as exiles, as sojourners in foreign lands. And as Christians today, I I would imagine most of you are, are feeling and maybe experiencing a foreign life here now more than you have even in the past decade. The more secular our culture becomes, the more anti Christ, anti Bible the culture becomes, the more foreign our life will feel. And the more difficult it will be to make wise decisions in light of the culture in which we are living. And the more desperate we will need to have wisdom from God to make sure that we are choosing the right battles to fight. Inside the church and outside the church. I mean, outside the church, my beloved, how many times have you heard Christians or Christian organizations arguing fervently about keeping prayer in the public schools? Or making sure that God's name is not removed from the Pledge of Allegiance. How much time and money do churches spend on political campaigns or fighting against socialism or simply trying to be relevant as a people? I'm not suggesting that we bow down to these lesser issues. Nor am I implying there's no connection between the larger 
and the smaller matters, or that the church should, not, should be silent on these. I'm not saying that. But in light of our cultural moment, my beloved, I believe we have much bigger battles to fight as a church. Should the church not be spending its time and resources fighting against the one million babies who will be murdered this year? I think that's more important than the Pledge of Allegiance. Shouldn't the time and energies of the church be fighting for monogamous heterosexual marriages to restraint to, to make sure that the family remains sacred? And should the church not be fighting against or should be fighting against the binary gender identification male, female, he, she, as God has so made us? And shouldn't our primary concern of all these things not be the saving of the world but the saving of people out of the world? Should it not be the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Should it not be taking the good news of Christ to our neighbors and our families and friends? That is why we're here. I mean, we are to work for the good of the community. We are to be the salt and the light. But apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. A bigger battle, a better battle than the Pledge of Allegiance or prayer in our public schools. And what about the battles within the church, my beloved? How wise are we discerning in those battles, in the church, and even in our own hearts? Jesus Christ, when he was rebuking the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, listen to what he said. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He said, you're hypocrites. Why were they hypocrites? He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It was a proverb to say, listen, you're so consumed with the little tiny things of the law, you're going to strain it out like you would a gnat out of a glass of water. But when it comes to things like mercy and justice, you'll swallow that down without any consideration of your disobedience. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, those are the battles we ought to be fighting. My beloved, when we're more concerned, listen, when we're more concerned about the style of music that the church plays, and I'm not saying it's not important, than we are our own sharing of the gospel with our friends and family who are perishing, we're fighting the wrong battle. We're fighting the wrong battle. When we are more interested in the number of pages of the Bible we read each day in our devotional than the number of disciples we are making in our lives, we're fighting the wrong battle. We're straining out gnats. And I would argue when we get caught up in so many of these online debates amongst people in our own backyard reform circles, I think it's the wrong battle. When you're striving to forgive your brother and sister in Christ in this community who has sinned against you, that's a good battle to fight. When you, my beloved, are fighting against being isolated and hiding and separating And instead, pushing hard to be in the context of community, to be loved by your brothers and sisters, to minister to your brothers and sisters, that's a good battle to fight. When you are fighting hard to use your gifts and your talents to minister the gospel in the context of this church and to bring the gospel to the lost in this neighborhood, those are battles worth fighting. I would argue, my beloved, that we need wisdom from God desperately to fight the right battles at the right time and in the right way. Mordecai was fighting a battle that was centuries old. 
He was certainly not going to overcome the tension between the Amalekites and the Jews by his not bowing down to Haman. Mordecai's decision to not bow down came at an excruciating cost. The Persian Empire, by the way, was relatively tolerant of minority groups. But this led to an irrevocable law calling for the execution not only of Mordecai for his refusal to submit, but for the execution of all of God's people. Jesus said that wisdom is proved right by her actions. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And certainly Mordecai's beef with Haman, the Agagite, in light of the consequences that ensued, would not have been considered wise by any measure of wisdom. So first we see, I pray, that we need wisdom from God in determining the battles that we fight. Amen? Number two, wisdom in the decisions that we make. So Haman's plan is in place, and now he needs to put it into action. He's come up with the idea, now he has to put it into action. Notice one of the first things he does. He seeks out the fates, superstition, magic, not wisdom, to set the date for this nationwide genocide of the Jews. He likely called astrologers or magicians, and they, they cast lots, which really, they, they rolled, it was kind of like rolling dice. And they rolled the dice in order to have the spirits, or an omen, I hate that word, set the date for the extermination of the Jews. In other words, it would be set by the gods, not the God. Now, this was common practice in the Mesopotamian culture. Kings and households did it all the time. When they wanted to make a major decision, they get out the lots and they start casting and casting and casting to get a decision, thinking somehow some supernatural force was bringing that to pass. Now, we know the Old Testament forbids that. That's witchcraft. It's superstition. It is demonic, and the Old Testament says, do not do it. But they came up with a date. Verse 13, we're told the 13th day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That was the day Haman believed fate had determined that all Jews would die. That all Jews, listen, verse 13, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day and plunder their goods. It was the extermination of God's people. Now, we may scoff at their dice rolling. And I don't imagine, well, maybe you do. I pray not. I don't imagine many of you go into your closet and grab some dice and throw it on the table to make a major life decision. I pray you do not. But many Christians practice very similar superstitions. We just don't cast lots. We attach terms like callings, signs, providence, opening and closing of doors. I've even heard Christians talk about opening and closing of windows. I don't know where that is at all. Kind of hard to get through too, especially as you get older. My brother, listen, if I set my mind to sell my house and relocate to another state and buy another house, and in that decision I put my house on the market at a fair market value and that house sells, that's not a sign. And if I get on an airplane and I fly to a state and I hire a real estate agent and we buy another house, that's not an open door. Simply because something transpires, whether it goes easily or with some difficulty, it does not mean, one, that it is pleasing to God, or two, that it's wise. 
And yet we talk like that all the time. Oh, God opened up this door. Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. Well, you were trying to sell your house, right? Yes. And someone bought it, right? Yes. Okay. We can say this. If it happened, if it does happen, then it was part of God's decreed will. But his decreed will does not mean it was wise for you. His decreed will may even mean it wasn't moral for you. I don't want to be mean, Lord, um, people, but we talk like this a lot. It's part of our language. We need to be very careful. When Jesus was tempted in the desert to bow his knee to Satan, and if he did, he would inherit the kingdoms of the earth and bypass the cross, if we were to apply our dice-rolling mentality to that, we would say to Jesus, that's certainly an open door. You don't have to go to the cross. What counsel would that have been? If you had said that to the Lord, he'd have said, get behind thee, Satan. In fact, it would have been the most catastrophic door anyone ever walked through because mankind and all of creation would perish. So Haman sets his date, but he needs approval from the king. He's second in command, but even with that power, he could not engage in the systematic extermination of two to three million Jews throughout the empire without the king saying, okay. Now, according to the text, Haman cast lots in the first month, listen to this, in the first month of the 12th year of Xerxes' reign. That means, listen, this is happening five years after Esther had become queen. Five years has transpired from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Okay, So just putting it into context. Sometime in late March or early April, Haman hatched this diabolical plan, a plan we would argue so evil and so wicked that even a megalomaniac like Xerxes, would hear it and say, we're not doing that. He knew that there were plenty of Jews in his kingdom that were profitable for his kingdom. That's not the wisdom we see coming from Xerxes. I would argue that wisdom was not one of Xerxes' strong points. Look at verse 8. Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Now listen, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. Now listen to verse 10. So the king took his signet ring, that's the authority of power, from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and he said, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. In other words, Haman, it's now in your hands. You have the power. So much for the wisdom of a level head prevailing. Not much common grace in that thought process. The question we have to ask also, though, is why would why would King Xerxes, he's not an Amalekite, he had no beef with the Jews, why would he submit to such a horrendous decision to exterminate two to three million people, productive citizens, in his kingdom? Uh, if we look carefully at this, my beloved, and if you have an open heart, I think you're going to see that the decision-making process of the king is very much like ours. We're going to see some parallels here, and you might be surprised how oftentimes you think like Xerxes because of the motivation of your heart. Well, first, we see absolutely that Xerxes was foolish because he was being intellectually lazy. 
He was being intellectually lazy. Haman makes a claim. Look at verse 8 again. Their laws, speaking of the Jews, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. Now, it would not be good for a sovereign king to have people violating his laws in the kingdom, right? In fact, it would be right for him to make sure that stopped. But notice what the king does not do. He doesn't ask for any details. He doesn't ask for evidence or proof. Haman says they do not keep your laws. He doesn't say, what laws are they not keeping? When are they not keeping it? I mean, if it was a minor law, you know, like, you know, they weren't, they weren't walking down the road the right way. You wouldn't want to just kill them. There's no investigation. So mistake number one that he made, that wisdom requires of each and every one of us, is that we fight against intellectual laziness. We want to, my beloved, ask the right questions and get the right decisions, especially when we're making a major decision. This would be a big decision. Simply hearing one side or one argument. We do this a lot. And then drawing a conclusion is unbiblical. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. How nice it would have been to have Mordecai there. And Xerxes would have heard from Haman and said, What say you, Mordecai? Different story. Probably would have influenced the king. I believe that our culture has lost all sense of Proverbs 18, 17. We hear, we swallow, we believe, and we go. If we had a a cultural proverb today, it would go something like this. He who speaks the loudest and the longest and censors all of the voices must be right. Hmm? That sounds about right. And if you don't agree, we'll censor you too. We'll censor you too. My beloved, we should expect this from the culture, right? Wisdom is contingent upon having a right relationship with the living God. The culture does not. But we ought not to expect this in the church. At least we should be pressing against this temptation to not rightly examine. My beloved, ask yourself honestly, how often do you hear a piece of information and you believe it without examination, without testing, without cross-examination? How often have you heard something about someone, a brother or sister in Christ, and you believed it without even inquiring? That's gossip. You know that, right? The Bible says we swallow that down and it cultivates a bitter root, breaks fellowship. We live in a time, we, we live in a time when information is bombarding us at all times from all sides. How much information? This is amazing to me. Forbes magazine reported there are 2.5 quintillion, that's a one with 18 zeros after it, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data created every day. Every day. Over the past two years, 90% of the data in the world was generated. Information that's coming at you. Google, on average, processes more than 40,000 searches every second. That's 3.5 billion searches a day, people getting information, gathering information. With such vast quantities coming at us from all sides, I would argue, maybe now more than ever, God's people must be vigilant to ensure that we ask the right questions, that we get the right answers before we make Decisions, both small and big. Fake news, inaccurate information, slanted storylines, partial truths are full lies. You know that, right? 
Half-truths are full lies. We get them every single day. And that means if you're not going to spend time doing real fact-checking, not hiring those who are biased to do the fact-checking, but doing real fact-checking, you as a believer, if you're not in the midst of a community listening and getting counsel from brothers and sisters in Christ, you are already making foolish choices. Already. There's a second thing, though, besides Xerxes' intellectual laziness that stood out to me here. He made a poor choice because he is radically self-centered. Look at verse 8 again. Haman tells him, they, the Jews, do not keep the king's laws, unsubstantiated mistake number one, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Mistake number two, he's thinking about himself. So he doesn't do his fact-checking, and he says, well, what about me? It's not profitable to you, Xerxes, to your kingdom. Wisdom wants to see the big picture. Wisdom, wisdom requires that we get out of ourselves, that we understand the universe, here's the news flash, does not revolve around you or me. There's a much bigger picture here. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Of death. It seems right to you. Of course it seems right to you. We haven't done the fact-checking. We haven't received counsel. All Xerxes had to hear was, the Jews are not profitable for your kingdom, and the death trap was set. That's all he had to hear, appealing to his flesh. My beloved, our sin nature, our need for glory, our need for worth, and our identity sets us on this exact same path. We need to be right. Even when we are absolutely wrong, we need to be right. And this is where I truly believe that God has blessed you with brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters who have the Spirit and have the Word of God that can come alongside you and show you your blind spots. My young marrieds, I know you know how hard it is to be married. My question to you is, have you spent ample time in the homes of people who have been married 20, 30, 40 years, and have you picked their brain? Have you asked them to tell me what has worked and what has not? What have been major roadblocks for you? That would be wise. Those who are not married and thinking about getting married, that's a big decision. That's a really big decision. Have you spent time talking to married couples getting wisdom and counsel on what that process looks like. What do you look for in a husband? What do you look for in a wife? How do you know it's right? That's wisdom. Parents, I'm not going to tell you that parenting is not challenging. Parenting is challenging. Parenting is one of those things, though, that everybody's a rookie, right? We all start off, you have your first child, and you're a rookie at it. So my question is, why aren't you in the homes of brothers and sisters who have been parents for years, or maybe they're grandparents, and have a second-generation perspective, saying, help me, show me. Stewards of God's money, living here is hard. Why aren't you seeking the counsel of brothers and sisters in Christ and how to spend your money well for the kingdom? I think the answer for all these and all the ones we could ask is it's, it's pride. It's really just pride, right? We don't want anybody telling us what we don't want to think is true. We don't want you telling us that we're wrong. And so we don't inquire. Question for you, are you aware of this predisposition of your sinful heart? Xerxes was not. 
and it led to a wicked edict. Are you cognizant that your heart wants to believe what you've set your heart on? I'll, I'll, I'll go one step further. Whatever you want most needs the greatest scrutiny. Whatever you really long for in your heart needs the greatest scrutiny by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word in the context of the church because that's where your heart is driven. And it doesn't mean it's necessarily right or wise. So Xerxes lacked wisdom because he was lazy intellectually. He lacked wisdom because he was self-centered. But then we have the creme de la creme. He lacked wisdom because he was greedy. Look at verse 9. Haman says, if it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, the Jews, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charged the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasury. Haman goes after his pride. He goes after his laziness, but then he puts the nail in the coffin and he goes after his love for money. 10,000 talents of silver. My beloved, that's more than half of the entire tax revenue of the empire in a single year. Massive quantity of money. Xerxes doesn't even ask Haman, how are you going to get it? Doesn't care. The carrot's so big, he just swallows it whole. He says, all right, I'll take it. 10,000 talents of silver, I'll take it. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, I think that most Christians living in the Western world still make decisions based upon money. I think we do. I think it's a trap that we've been in so long we don't see it well. Where we work, where we live, what house we buy, the cars we drive, the schools we attend, more often than not are not based upon kingdom principles, the gospel ministry, the church of which you are a member. They're based upon finances. They're based upon money. Now, we live in one of the most expensive places in the world, making this an even greater temptation. Taxes are high, gas is high, rent is high, mortgage largely unattainable by most people. And therefore, when greed comes in to a place like this, it makes major life decisions excruciatingly difficult. When you live in a more expensive area like this, that temptation to want to press into money becomes harder. We want to believe with all our might when Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, all your mortgage, all your rent will be paid for. We want to believe that with all our might. I mean, we want to as professing, Bible-believing Christians that if we work hard, no matter where we are, Christ will provide. He'll make sure we have food on the table and clothes on our back. He'll make sure we can pay our PG&E so the lights don't go off. We believe, we want to believe that he will meet those needs. Not our greedy wants, but our, our needs. But I would argue in light of our contemporary moment, as company after company is not only leaving the area, but allowing employees to work remotely, saying you can make your $120,000 and live in Alabama. As we see what the dollar can buy in places like Idaho or Texas or Tennessee compared to the Bay Area, we become painfully aware, whether we want to admit it or not, the power of money in our decision-making process. Jesus said very clearly, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My beloved, I, I cannot 
tell you, I could not count if you asked me the number of dialogues I had like this over the past 20 years. I couldn't tell you. They've been too numerous. With the exception of a handful of families, the gospel ministry here in San Jose, the gospel ministry here through this church has almost always been trumped by the buying of a new house, the going to a particular school, the getting of some land, the growing up a family in another location. Now, I'm not saying that the Spirit of God does not move people as He see fits. He is God, so He decrees. But I do not believe that the Holy Spirit only moves people to places that are economically advantageous. I don't see that in the Bible. I see quite the opposite. I see God moving His people to places where souls are lost and need of salvation. Over the years when these dialogues are happening and decisions are being made, the work of the ministry covenant community here, the need for souls to be saved in San Jose is rarely a primary consideration. It's not that it's not a consideration, it's just not primary. And I would hasten to say that not a single family who's left in the last 20 years has come before the church and said, in the next six months, I want you to pray fervently and help me make this decision. That's basic communal wisdom, and yet we haven't done it a single time. That's how individualized we think as a people. What was so basic to the church for centuries, we miss by a mile. And yet if we want to be wise, we can't miss it. Self-interest and greed, whether we want to admit it or not, it, it still motivates us as professing believers. One of the reasons we spent so much time in the community series talking about communal decision making is because of wisdom. We want to be wise. I know you want to be wise. None of you said, no, I want to be a fool, Pastor. I want to go through my life as the biggest fool I can be. No Christian thinks like that. People don't think like that. And yet, on our own, we're intellectually lazy. We are. It's really nice to grab onto a piece of information and say, okay, that's, my, that's what I'm going to think. On our own, we're lazy. On our own, we're biased, and we believe what we want to believe. And on our own, we are greedy. We are greedy. But in the context of a covenant community, in the context of a local church of brothers and sisters who know you and love you, people saved by God who will one day reign over the heavens and the earth, there's an opportunity for each and every one of us to come in, in the context of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in community and hear decisions made wisely. So young people, if you're planning on getting married and there's a prospect on the horizon, if you're not bathed in prayer and seeking God's word and seeking counsel in this church, I will tell you now in all of you're an absolute fool to proceed. I'm not picking on you. The Holy Spirit and the word of God in the context of the saints is a gift. It's God's grace. God knows that we're fools. He knows the disposition of our hearts. He knows we're lazy. He knows we're greedy. And so he says, here's the gift. My word, my spirit, and my people so that we can collectively make very wise decisions together. But that means that we all must be willing to swallow our pride. We must be willing to seek the counsel of others. And if you have 10 people telling you the same thing and you go the opposite direction, it's likely a bad decision it means that we must come in and exercise wisdom by admitting that we don't have all the answers. Let's go one step further, that we don't have most of the answers. 
but coming into the context of the church under the power of the Holy Spirit and opening our Bibles and saying, can you help me? Can you help me? It's a great place for wisdom to begin. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Oh, my beloved, I mean, what a simple truth. And what a simple paradigm shift in our lives. If we say, you know what, I believe these two Proverbs. I need help. Those are very wise words. Very, very wise words. So our scene ends with Xerxes taking, look at verse 10, his signet ring from his hand, and he gives it to Haman, empowering Haman to kill all of God's people. And then after giving the matter so little thought, we're told at the end of verse 15 that he and Haman go off to have a drink and celebrate the decision. My beloved, the consequences for foolish decisions can be far-reaching. The more power and influence you have, as we see here, the more catastrophic those decisions can be. So I'll ask you honestly, you ask yourself, are you driven by a gospel-directed logic in your decision-making? Are you thinking Christ first, kingdom first, body of Christ first? Are you saying to yourself, word of God, speak to me in the spirit with my brothers and sisters to make wise choices? Or have you, have you succumbed to the signs and the omens and the wonders and the dice to make your decisions? Have you handed the signet ring of your life over to your own fleshly appetites and your own wisdom? And are you stamping that, those decisions with the power of your own will? If so, my beloved, I want you to hear the sage in Proverbs chapter 1 say to you right now, listen, wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? First proverb in the book of the sages. So we see need for wisdom In the battles we fight, we see need for wisdom in the decisions that we make. I'm laughing because you're looking tired. All right, last point, you ready? I don't know, I want to be wise. I do. After hearing all this, if you are saying to yourself and realizing, I'm a fool, you're hearing it correctly. You're actually almost there. If in hearing all this you're thinking, oh, I, I, I fight the wrong battles all the time. I make bad decisions all the time. I do it for my own pride, for my own glory. Listen to the words of Agar, son of Jacob, in Proverbs 30. He had the same concern. He said, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and I'm worn out. <laughs> Surely I am too stupid to be a man. This is a sage writing. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor I have knowledge of the Holy One. And then he asked these questions. Listen with all your might. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. And that's your answer to wisdom. You say, what answer? You just... Ask several questions. Point number three, the wisdom in the king that we serve. So the edict goes out to destroy God's people. It's sealed. 
and it's delivered to every province throughout the land. The citadel of Susa, it's thrown into confusion because not only did they have productive, peaceful Jews living in the city, but as we talked about last week, when a Persian law was passed, it could not be retracted. Right? This was an extermination of two to three million people by a law that now cannot be changed. Nothing could be done. Nothing, that is, if Xerxes truly was the highest power in the land. Nothing could be done. But the meta-narrative of all human history is that God is the sovereign of all creation. The meta-narrative is that God is sovereign over the heavens and the earth. So even though Xerxes, at that moment in time, had authority over 100 million people, God is, was, will always be the true king. Always the true king, and that's revealed clearly in our text. So remember, Haman superstitiously tries to find a date for the extermination of the Jews by casting lots. We know from Proverbs 16.33 that a lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from whom? From the Lord. Even the dice when they're rolled and the numbers that come up, God so decrees it. You say, well, how does that show us that God's in charge here? What Haman thought was an omen was actually God decreeing the actual day of the edict's extermination of the Jews. It's kind of hard to pick this up in the text because it's a little convoluted. This plan was hatched and the dice were rolled in the first month. It wasn't until the 12th month that the plan was going to be executed. And so this edict goes out to the land and 11 months there's time for God to use Mordecai and Esther to not only save his people but bring himself glory. 11 months. God decreed that date. Not an omen nor a a magician. But look at verse 11. Xerxes says to Haman, the people also, he's speaking of the Jews, the people also are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. Now, we know from the Bible that God has absolute authority over all people and specific authority over his chosen ones. Otherwise, verse 11 is fake news. This is not real. It's not factual. Not only is it fake news, but Pharaoh learned the hard way You don't make a claim on God's people and not suffer the consequences. Listen, God's people belong to God. You belong to God. He loves you, he nourishes you, and he will certainly protect you from an evil king like Xerxes. Xerxes has no legitimate authority to transfer power to Haman, even with his signet ring. No power, because God is king. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God made this very clear. He says, I will take you, speaking of the Jews, for my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Simple, profound statement. God is your God. He makes sure of your eternal safety. There is no doubt this edict went out, and I imagine God's people were terrified. I mean, that's pretty bad news. In 11 months, they're going to kill, destroy, and annihilate every single one of us. This persecution coming. I imagine they also probably made some very poor choices. Hmm? Many of them probably sold their homes. Many of them probably fled. Trying to figure out a way to survive. When we see persecution building here in our lives, we see people making lots of choices. I mean, there's persecution right now. This gathering is illegal right now, and yet you're here. We see it more difficult to share the gospel in the workplace. 
we are going to find how, how difficult it is to fight for the unborn, to defend the sanctity of gender in marriage. And I would argue many Christians today in the West were, were afraid. We see a tie that we do not like. We see laws being passed that are contrary to the will of God and God's Word. And many like those in Susa may be thinking, where can I go and hide? Where can I flee? How am I to be faithful in the midst of such darkness? How am I to make wise choices for my family and the church in the midst of such darkness? My beloved, if you have placed your hope in a politician or a political party, and I've heard Christians saying, well, at least we have the Supreme Court. Listen, you should be terrified. If that's where your hope is, you should be utterly terrified. James 3.15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. The wisdom from God is not in the Supreme Court, and it's certainly not in the presidency or Congress, but this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and James says demonic. And I would agree. But, and here's the glorious opposition to this truth. If you have placed your hope in the eternal king, the ruler of the heavens and the earth, then right now peace and joy and wisdom, not anxiety, not fear, and not terror, can captivate your heart and lead you on a path of righteousness. If Christ is your king... Not just what you say with your mouth, but each and every day saying, the Lord is my king, I will follow him. We can be wise not only because we know that God is sovereign, because he is the king over the heavens and the earth, but more importantly, and this is how I'm going to close, listen, our eternal king has already executed his plan of death. Not against the Jews, but against sin and death itself. He's already exercised the plan. And if you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal king to save you, then you know what? You are saved. The eternal edict of death cannot touch you. Jesus said in John chapter 11, remember he's speaking to Martha. Martha had just lost her brother Lazarus and he says to her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says this, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's asking you this morning. Haman said of the Jews in verse 8, they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. The commentators are, but that may or may not have been true during the reign of Xerxes. We do not know. But we do know this. Under the reign of King Jesus, this statement is true for every soul ever born. We have not kept the king's laws. We have refused to bow down to King Jesus, even though all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him by the Father. We have refused to submit to him in every area of our lives. And it is certainly not to God's profit to tolerate our sin and our rebellion. He is perfectly glorified and sufficient in and himself. He does not need us. To make matters worse, my beloved, Haman's petitioning for the extermination of the Jews, you would say Haman was an enemy of the Jews. We have a worse enemy. We have Satan, the accuser, who stands before God ready to bring 
every hateful word you've ever uttered, every foolish battle you've ever fought, every foolish decision you've ever made to bring before God. Satan has ample evidence to argue before the throne of God for our death. And you know what? God's in full agreement. He says to Satan, you're right. My beloved, not 10,000 talents of silver or all the good works you can do or all the religious religion you can practice can make up for a single sin that's put you in debt to this king. In other words, the bad news for mankind is that the edict for our destruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate body and soul in hell for all eternity has been legitimately brought before our great king. It is, has been irrevocably signed the charges have been levied. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The just verdict is guilty and the punishment is eternal death. You say, well, you better keep going because I'm never coming back to this church if that's all you're going to say. As we will see in Esther in the next few weeks, God's people do not die. God's people, those who truly belong to him, cannot die. You say, well, how is this possible? If God is perfectly just, and you just said man is perfectly unjust, how can a good God not punish sin, big or small? Listen, because just as the consequences of Mordecai's refusal to bow a knee to Haman led to the king's edict of death to kill all of God's people, the consequences for all who will bow their knee to King Jesus in faith leads to the eternal king's edict of life. Eternal life to all who repent and believe in the Son. My beloved, when Jesus was tempted in the desert on that day by Satan to bypass the cross by just bowing a knee to the true enemy of God, Christ refused He refused so that he could ascend the cross, pay for the sins of his people in full, and enable us to be received by a perfectly righteous God. Are you like the sage this morning, crying out, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out? Do you realize that foolishness is the disposition of the sinful heart? then I would call you to repent of your sins this morning. Repent of your foolish decisions. Repent of your intellectual laziness. Repent of your self-centeredness. Repent of your pride. Repent of your greed. And put your faith, your whole life, in the one who can not only rescue you from the ravages of these sins, but the one who can also make you wise. The answer to the sage's question, when he said, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Surely you know. It is Jesus Christ. It is our eternal king. It is our Lord and Savior. It is wisdom in the flesh. My beloved, wisdom is not an idea. It's not a thought process. It's a person. It's a person. I would ask you if you want to become wise, but I know the answer is yes. If you want to become wise for the glory of God, wiser than anyone before you, 
You don't need to get a seminary degree. You don't need to read thousands of books. What you need, what I need, what every son of Adam needs is wisdom in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Go to him daily in prayer to become wise. Go to him daily in his word to see him and to know him, to love him and be loved by him, and you will become wise. Go to him in the church. Come in as an active, vibrant, wisdom-giving, wisdom-receiving member of his body here or somewhere else, and wisdom will be your path. The prophet said, Jeremiah, God said through him, Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. God said that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As soon as you realize you are a fool in need of wisdom for your life, for the lives of those around you, for God's glory, you will run to Christ with all your might because He is wisdom. You will run to Christ and you will dwell in Him daily knowing that true wisdom can only be found in the presence and power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, every soul here in this room I know wants to be wise. Many of us have adopted the ways of wisdom that has been permeated by the culture, the foolishness of our own hearts, our intellectual laziness, our self-centeredness, and our own greed. Father, I pray that you would strip that away, that you would show us that wisdom comes in having a right relationship with you through your Son, And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us. Bless Cambrian Park Baptist Church. Bless each and every one of us that we would live the wisest lives possible. Do it for our own good, Father, that we might not destroy ourselves. Do it for those around us, our our parents and our children and grandchildren and family and brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might be a blessing to others. Oh, Lord, do it for your church here. Make us wonderfully wise that we might be the most brilliant lights to bring the gospel to this dark place. Do it for your glory, Lord. Do it so that you might receive the glory in giving the wisdom from Christ to us. I ask, Lord, that you would cause us to meditate again on Esther chapter 3, see the foolishness of the wisdom of man, and run like the fools that we are to the cross of Christ and hold on with all our might that we might become a wise people too. In Jesus' name, amen.